0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Travel Texas, which recently partnered with Outside to send Olivia Christine to Dallas on a wellness getaway.
1: So when Outside told me that I was invited to take a surprise trip to Dallas, I was so excited.
0: A wellness getaway is basically the process of finding your perfect balance between energizing activity and meaningful rest.
1: Maybe that's going for a walk. Maybe that's going for a a hike, a run, maybe that's a luxurious hotel that you just completely self pamper and go to a spa.
0: With easy access to trails, good food, and great weather, Dallas is a perfect place for people with an active lifestyle. But it's also a place where you can slow down and feel your best.
1: So if you wanna get active, if you wanna get outdoors, while pairing that with Good food, good scenery, that's the way to do it.
0: Visit TravelTexas.com slash Get Your Own to get the trip to Texas that really matters. Yours.
1: From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast.
2: Hey, everyone. Before Marin brings us today's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we're excited about. It's called The Tundra Files, and it's hosted by Outside Magazine contributing editor Nick Heil. The six-part series has Nick going on an obsessive search for a first-generation Toyota Tundra. Why? Well, you gotta hear Nick explain it. And his answer is fascinating to anyone who likes trucks or stories about engineering and design. You can listen to The Tundra Files wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's Maren.
1: Like many millennials, I was a PBS kid. My slightly hippie parents mostly discouraged me from watching TV at all, but on some rainy days, they'd allow me a glimpse of public access television through our old boxy TV, which got decent reception through an old-school antenna. I watched Arthur and Reading Rainbow and Zoom, The Joy of Painting, The Teletubbies, and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's been years since I've seen any of these shows. But through the haze of my memory, I can still feel their warm and safe aura. I had assumed that era of TV was a relic of the world before 9-11. But it turns out PBS is still at it, creating shows that can make us feel like little kids on a rainy day. So do you have any questions before we dive in?
2: Um, Where are you and how are you feeling?
1: (laughs) I am in Denver, Colorado, and I just moved here a few days ago. What? That's how my conversation with Baratunde Thurston about his new show for PBS started. He was thousands of miles away, and his first priority was making me, the person who was supposed to be running the interview, feel much more relaxed and comfortable. This sweet, neighborly approach might not be what you'd expect from Baratunde based on his resume. He used to write for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, as well as the satirical newspaper The Onion. He does stand-up comedy and published a comedic memoir titled How to Be Black. In 2019, he delivered a powerful TED Talk called How to Deconstruct Racism. He hosts a podcast called How to Citizen and is a regular guest on cable news shows. And yet... PBS tapped Baratunde for a very different kind of project. I
2: host America Outdoors with Baratunde Thurston, and this is a show that explores the relationship between a diverse set of Americans and uh, the outdoors. It's fun, it's active, it's challenging and inspiring, and I can't wait for people to see how hard I worked (laughs) running around this country doing every outdoor activity there is.
1: I watched several episodes of America Outdoors before I spoke to Baratunde. And one of the first things I mentioned to him was that his show instantly brought me back to those times I had as a kid in front of the TV. It felt like just absolutely classic PBS to me. It was like, Mr. Rogers, but your neighborhood is the whole country. Is, is that kind of what you were going for? or
2: I like the way you put that, that like the neighborhood is the whole country. And I think what I was most looking forward to and excited about is like it's not, it's a people show more than it is a nature show or a quote-unquote outdoor show."
1: But it is a show about the outdoors. Each of the six episodes focuses on a region of the country. It's just that Baratunde explores the places he visits through the lenses of the people who live there. And in his own way, he brings that won't-you-be-my-neighbor feel wherever he goes.
2: Are you the mayor of Cerro Gordo? Oh,
1: <laughs> depends
2: on who's asking. Ah, <laughs> uh, just a visitor, man, just a visitor. Welcome, welcome. Look at this. Something, right? Yeah, I'm feeling humbled.
1: That's Day in Cerro Gordo, California, a ghost town on the edge of Death Valley, talking with Brent Underwood for the first episode of the series. In other episodes, he travels to the coast of North Carolina, to northern Minnesota, and to the hills of Appalachia. If you're thinking that this seems like an odd gig for someone who made a name for himself in comedy and political and social commentary, well, that's what I thought, too. But it turns out that Baratunde and the outdoors go way back back to Washington, D.C. in the 80s, where he was raised by a single mother.
2: I've been going outside since I was uh, a wee one, and my mother really used the outdoors to help my friends and I escape some of the pressures of the hood. You know, it was a classic 1980s childhood where my mom tells me, go outside, I don't care what you do, just be home before the street lights come back on, which encouraged a level of mischief, which I'm very excited uh, that I survived. But there was also, on her part, more organized adventures to get us to see the world beyond our block. And so my mother was a member of the Sierra Club. My mother loved going on walks and hikes and bike rides. And she took me and my friends hiking along the CNO Canal, biking out Rock Creek Park, camping out in the Blue Ridge Mountains. By the time I was 12, I had visited every state on the East Coast by car. So the the outdoors was, for me, a really good way to connect with my mother, and to enjoy time with my friends without the stress of police, of drug deals, of kind of that urban danger that was ratcheting up in the eighties as the crack wars and the war on drugs was ratcheting up, and um, calming. You know, it's just like the rhythm of nature is very different from the rhythm of human made institutions and and physical structures. So I grew up seriously doing a lot of outdoorsy things. And then I took a hiatus uh, from the outdoors as I got more and more into tech and computers and the the built world. And this show honestly helped bring me back to something that was a big part of, of my own founding story.
1: Baratunde's childhood in the nation's capital ingrained the language of politics into his speech patterns. When he talks about the outdoors being central to his founding story, you can tell that he's not just thinking of his own early years, but also those of his country. Thus the name of the show, America Outdoors. But when it comes to the outdoors part of that name, Baratunde wanted to make sure that this would be an outdoor show unlike any other.
2: My idea of an outdoor show is premised on the adventure itself like a big race, or an epic conquest, or a huge obstacle, like this cliff, this mountain, this river, or it's on the animals. And you hear a likely European accent explaining to you the mating habits of an animal that you haven't heard of before. And this wasn't really either of those. For me, it was like, look at all these people. And I think as someone who I write a lot about America, I comment on America, I'm a major public speaker, cable news (laughs) mouther-offer. And some of that commentary is quite removed from the country. It's a bit ironic. And so if you look at kind of like the hub of cable news in America, it's like New York City, the 30th floor of a building in Manhattan. And this just felt like spiritually the opposite of that. It actually, you know, what it reminded me of is back in 2008, I did a lot of campaigning for the Obama campaign, door to door, and I went out and I knocked on strangers' doors and I stood on their porches and I drank their tea and I had conversations with them about things we did not agree with. And that was a much more satisfying way to kind of do politics than the punditry thing. So I think of this show, it's it's loosely political, but it's not in the Brady Bunch suit and tie you know, four box TV setup, we're like sweating on a mountaintop. And that's just a different environment, literally a different environment to connect with someone around. And it lowers the temperature, even if it's technically hotter and it's more fun. (laughs) So I just felt more connected to the country making this show than doing a lot of other things I've done that presumably connect me to the country.
1: In the summer of 2021, Baratunde and his crew set out to talk with Americans in some of our country's most exceptional natural environments. His goal was to answer one burning question.
2: The question I asked most people, sometimes explicitly, always implicitly, is how were you shaped by the outdoors? Like there is a, a tone, there's an energy frequency of a New Yorker which is affected heavily by this constructed outdoor, highly compressed, highly dense environment. And it is the opposite wavelength of an Idahoan. And someone who needs to see, you know, 10 miles in every direction, or they feel claustrophobic. And then that shows up in the politics, it shows up in the food, it shows up in the pace of speech and like the style of their walk. The the coastal community of the Outer Banks, like. They are whipped up by the winds of the Atlantic in a really different way than the people of Death Valley, who are whipped up by the winds of that desert. Even though both have a lot of sand, it's just really different vibes. It's almost like meeting someone's parents, and you're like, now I see how you are the way you are.
1: In other words, meeting someone's motherland is often a whole lot like meeting someone's mother. But even people raised on the same land can be shaped by it in very different ways.
2: We spent time with the Timbisha, who are the indigenous people who originally settled Death Valley. Uh, They hate the name Death Valley. It it got that name because some white dudes got lost. And they're like, this will now be known as Death Valley. And it's like, just because you can't hang doesn't mean you got to brand this whole thing for all time uh, because you didn't bring enough water. Like, that's on you. So they call it Tim Bishop. And I met with this elder, Pauline Estevez, who is just like very feisty about land rights and the proper use of water out there. And she has a nephew that we also interviewed right after her. And he works for the resort adjacent to the reservation. And he manages their massive golf course. And there's like sprinklers and water galore. And it's just this big patch of green and palm trees in the desert. And so just that contrast, I didn't do a pick-a-side audience. Who's right? You know, Pauline or the nephew? But we just showed both. And there was some natural absurdity that just hangs there for people to determine on their own.
1: Over the course of filming America Outdoors, Baratunde says there was one place that truly surprised him. And this will probably surprise you. It was Idaho, a state that he says is no small potatoes. That's coming up after a short break. When
2: you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take.
1: On his tour of America, there were few places he went that he'd never seen before. But there was one spot that was completely foreign to him, and it blew his mind.
2: Everywhere that we went is beautiful, truly. But freaking Idaho, Mary, my God. Uh, Idaho shocked me. It's so diverse. It's kind of like the nation in one place. It, It has these like very green, curvy, around the river scenes, but it also has this desert vibe in some of the Southern California. It's got sand dunes, just like the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Idaho blew me away, and it just, I think I think of it as the most beautiful because I didn't expect it to be. I think, to be honest, like Idaho exceeded my expectations more than any other place I visited. And it was also the newest to me.
1: In Idaho, Baratunde flew in a two-seater plane, went mountain biking, and, of course, visited a 28-foot potato. He also got very far outside his comfort zone, riding a horse for the first time in decades with fifth-generation rancher Martin Black. And Baratunde, who I'm convinced could strike up a conversation with a fence post— encountered his biggest human challenge yet.
2: Our rancher in Idaho was a tough nut to crack. (laughs) For someone who we invited on the show to talk, uh, Martin is a man of few words. (laughs) And I remember, first of all, just trying to think about what to wear for this. We're going to get you dressed. Yeah, I'm ready to get dressed. Right. I, mean, I thought I was dressed, but... Yeah, well, this is real cowboy stuff. You're not a real cowboy, so I'm, like, overthinking all that, because, like, how do I impress this man and get him to trust and connect with me? But also, I need him. Like, I don't know how to do horse stuff. and I know how to ride a bike. I know how to paddle. I don't know how to horse. And uh, we're in the barn, and he's just, like, so cool. And he's just, like, you know... His mouth is even shaped in a way where like, he just doesn't talk much. It's kind of like, it's a little tight, just a little like, he speaks in a kind of clipped manner.
1: I don't do everything the way they used to do it. I like electricity, I like (laughs) running water. And
2: so every syllable, I'm like, I'm looking for deeper meaning in everything. (laughs) And uh, so we're in the barn and my horse is spider. And he's like, yes, you just want to, Get on up on that horse and then we'll we'll go out and uh, show you some things. I'm like, hey Mark, do you wanna you wanna show me how to get on the horse? <laughs> I'm just like, he just had kind like of left me. And like I just know, like I don't wanna get kicked in the face by the horse. And and he's like, yeah, so you just wanna you know avoid uh avoid the hindquarters. <laughs> right. And I'm just like Really, dude, is this what we're doing? Is this my lesson? And so he just he had this common sense way of i think of it as like letting me figure it out and maybe hazing me a little bit um so we had a lot of silence initially between us and i think you know that's just him right that's that's literally his environment it's very quiet out there he doesn't like listen to podcasts he didn't know who the rock was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <You know? laughs> he talked about he's like I go into town if I if I need something, but I really like it out here. I, I like seeing people coming.
1: But I enjoy uh, you know just this vastness. You know I go to Eastern states and see the trees, and you you can't see fifty feet. I don't like that. I like to see you know the distance. I like to see if there's somebody over there. Maybe I want to go see him. Maybe I don't want to be seen. You know, I you know it's. Nobody gets to jump
0: on you out here very easily. It's hard <laughs> to sneak you. up on <laughs> you. Yeah, it's hard to sneak up. You can see them coming for 20
2: miles. And then we had a lot of alone time because we had to meet people like up on a ridge. And the horse can get there a different path than the, than the pickup. So they got to take the long way around. So I'm just, it's just me and Martin and Spider. Yeah. And I just had to learn so fast and not be afraid. And I think this the relationship was tough. You know, the interaction was tough, because it was like me and Martin and this horse, I don't know either of them, but they're reading me and they're like feeding off me, especially the horse. Like in what I learned, the horse is like an emotional divoting rod for humans. You know, the more agitated I was, the more agitated the horse was. If I was on edge, the horse is on edge. If I was chill, the horse was chill. And if I was ambivalent about my intention for what direction we go, then the horse was ambivalent. So it's like everything I needed to learn, (laughs) this horse was trying to teach me and and Martin didn't like hold my hand through that process. He kind of let me figure it out and then he would say enough, like just enough for me to to learn it.
1: The way I ride a horse, I don't just operate them like a piece of machinery. I try to work on their emotions a little bit and keep them willing to do what I want and not just forcing them. And you know, they're working animals. They're not, they're not pets, they're not companion animals. Yeah. They're working animals. And I'm out here doing a job and they're out here doing a the job.
0: And these are your coworkers.
2: And then he watched me and he loosened up, but more importantly, I loosened up. And I'm like kind of putting this on him, even retelling it, but I think I was, physically stiff, I was out of my element. I uh, I knew we were coming from very different political worlds. Like absolutely, I didn't want to make it about that. And so I'm like deploying every countermeasure I got from like interviews and conversations and comedy just to see what might stick. And then what I was able to find out when I just like shut up and listen and didn't try to fill the space, this dude's hilarious. And I was like, all we right, we're right, we're gonna be okay. You're not, you're, you're not going to let me get kicked in the face, but you're not going to make it easy. Your sense of humor is drier than the land that you own.
1: <laughs> and that's, that's cool. I got a lot to learn here. I told you, it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> Martin Black's tight-lipped stoicness wasn't the only challenge Baratunde faced in Idaho. After his time on the ranch, he met up with Sammy and Jessica Matsaw a native couple who live in the southwestern part of the state, to go on a traditional salmon hunt using spears. But it didn't go as planned.
2: We approached uh, the South Fork of the Salmon River to spend the day with the Matsaws, this couple who are part of the Shoshone-Bannock tribe, to join them on their salmon hunt. How long have the Shoshone-Bannock been here?
0: Since time immemorial.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling you said that before. (laughs) We showed up and the mood was weird in the air. And most people are excited to see us. We showed up and there was just like a sadness in the air. And I was like, yo, did somebody die? Like it felt really like a mourning. And that's kind of what happened. What happened is they decided not to do the salmon hunt because uh, there were so few salmon. And the ones that they found were weak. They were too soft. They were almost being cooked by the river. It's a climate change catastrophe. And so they were trying to call the whole thing off. And of course the producers like, like, we, well, we flew here, we rented these vehicles, like we can't just not, do, so what can we do? And they sorted out something else. But I was listening to this couple and they had their two little girls and, and they were trying to still teach their kids about the salmon hunt without salmon, which was beautiful and sad. So we acted it out. <laughs> and, and they let me hold the spear and stare in the water and jab at like nothing. And they described their history. You know, they are known as the salmon people. When they said, you know, for thousands of years, the salmon took care of us. And now it's our turn to take care of them. And uh, it was just super emotional, man. And I I was just, as sensitive as I am, I'm not used to leading with my heart in thinking about some issues, especially the climate issue. It can get pretty quantitative or pretty advocacy-ish. But when you see parents trying to pass on a tradition to their kids, and mourning their need to modify it so dramatically, but still finding a way to uphold that commitment, that's freaking beautiful. <laughs> that that moved me deeply, and I just also felt honored to participate in that.
1: That mix of beauty and pain is at the heart of what Baratunde loves about his country.
2: We have a level of beauty that is pretty uniquely wide-ranging, and we also have a level of trauma and pain attached to the land that is very, very, very deep. I consider myself to be very patriotic, and I really, really, really love this country. It's been a journey to get to a point where I could embrace that fully, you know, without hedge or apology or small print and asterisks and whatnot, accepting <laughs> uh, genocide of indigenous people, blah, 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 gentrification, blah. There's a long list of issues that don't make me proud. But I, I had a really, for me, profound reframing of my relationship with the country just in the past couple of years. And I was, you know, with the solitude of COVID, spending a lot of time with myself and reflecting on parts of me that uh, I don't love And accepting flaws was a really important step for me to embracing and accepting America's flaws as not an addendum to my love for the country, but like an essential ingredient. It's like, oh, to, to love a person is to know a person. And when you really know someone, you know all of them. Like, you know the stuff you like, and you know the stuff you don't like. You know the stuff they're proud of, and you know the stuff they're ashamed of. And I think that proximity to the whole truth of someone, you know, engenders trust and is really a prerequisite for real love as opposed to just adoration or infatuation. So I love the country because I know the country and I could like integrate all of the shame, all of the challenge, all of the regret and the problem with all of the beauty and all of the inspiration and and all of the unique like we're a country predicated on a shared idea that's mind-blowing that's like the nerdiest shit ever i think that's just really remarkable and i'm down for that i'm down for continuing that experiment i think it's a beautiful thing to try i think that experiment is made more successful if we don't run away out of a sense of shame or fear from from the parts of us that we're not proud of. I appreciate and criticize uh, this land. And also like, look, if you're Black in this country and like your ancestors were enslaved by this country, I think we have pretty high ranking dibs on the title American, right? It's very hard to be more American than to be owned by America. We are like the property of the United States, that's it. We're made in America and we're kind of a unique, folk in that way, even though our ancestors didn't necessarily choose to come here, they clearly chose to stay alive here because that's how we exist. And I think that's also kind of beautiful.
1: For what Baratunde says was the most intense segment of the entire series, he traveled to a swamp in the American South and got a powerful sense of what his ancestors really had to go through just to survive in this country.
2: So let me paint the picture for you. We are on the border of Virginia and North Carolina in a, in a region called the Great Dismal Swamp. And at the founding of this country, this swamp was 2,000 square miles. And George Washington, literally, our founding papa, he uh, was a member of a corporation that, whose mission was to drain the swamp. That's where that comes from. And he wanted to drain the swamp along with his co-founders to monetize the swamp and turn it into productive crops, like such as cotton and other unoriginal stuff. <laughs> and and the way that he goes about this is with you know forced labor with enslaved people, and they they attack this swamp and they dredge it and they build these ditches through it, but ultimately they don't really tame it. And they think of it as cursed. They brand it the Great Dismal Swamp because there's a lot of ticks and mosquitoes and gators and panthers and monsters and demons, according to them. So they're afraid of it. And a place that the land-holding, brutal, you know, slave economist fear is a great place for people who fear them. So this... Swamp becomes a refuge. It becomes a key part of the Underground Railroad. It becomes home to maroon settlements of folks escaping that economy, escaping that brutality and, and those labor camps and that torture. It becomes a little patch of freedom. And fifty thousand folks, over the course of almost a century, lived in this swamp to get away from George Washington and, and his version. Uh, of America for them. And I got to enter that swamp. I got to spend time with a descendant uh, of one of the men who was a boatman in the swamp. And I got to go in with an archeologist who spent about 15 years identifying artifacts and telling the story of these maroon settlements. And uh, there are these little raised islands within the swamp and we're, we're stomping through it. It's foggy, it's damp, it's misty. I'm wearing full body wader because there's leeches and all kinds of nasty stuff in here. And I'm not a swamp creature. You know, I'm down to do outdoor stuff but me and swamps. You know? And it feels like I'm on a Jedi training mission. Like I expect to see Yoda at any moment, <laughs> but our archeologist, he pauses us at one moment. He's like, you see that there? That's one of the islands. And he's like, do you want to approach it? And they let me go alone. And it was cloudy, overcast, uh, drizzly day. And when I stepped foot on that island, the sun came out. And I just felt the presence of my ancestors, of people like yearning to be free. And we had this saying, we're making a way out of no way. Like the great dismal swamp was no way. And, and folks made it that way. And then the settlements that they were able to build were made possible by... <laughs> Indigenous people who lived there thousands of years earlier, whose patches of ground and clay pots were very useful to the Black folk. So there was this conversation amongst very different people, across very different times, in the same physical space. And I just, I was moved to tears.
1: That connection to the land, through time, through politics, through difference and adversity, is what Baratunde hopes people who watch his show will go out and find for themselves. He's a guy who names almost every project he's done so far with a how-to. How to be Black, how to deconstruct racism, how to citizen. So America Outdoors has him once again trying to teach us something.
2: I, I want us to learn more deeply how to be together. How to connect with each other, not just the human, each other, the whole thing. I was impressed and um, a little shocked to realize the simplicity of like all these different people sharing a connection to common ground. We have like all this difference and even all this conflict, but there's like a common ground that connects us, and we're all shaped by this land. And and so many of us have an appreciation of it that we don't often see across the other divisions, which we're very much aware of. And then, of course, there's division around how land should be used and who owns it and all that. It's not just a united front, but there is common ground that we literally share. And I think of that as a gateway to connect with ourselves, connect with each other, and connect with the planet. And then when we do that, I want us to work like hell to preserve that relationship because it's in peril, because we've neglected it. I don't expect viewers to do everything that I did. That's It was highly constructed and rather expensive to pull off. But I hope that wherever folks are, they find a version of what I got that works for them.
1: You can watch America Outdoors with Baratunde Thurston for free at pbs.org slash America Outdoors. And you can read a very thoughtful review of the show by writer Carolyn Finney on our website, outsideonline.com. If you want to follow Baratunde's work, well, I'll let him tell you how. I'm on
2: social as Baratunde, and I have a text message number that I use. It's kind of a semi-public service, almost like a mailing list, and I send regional updates and misses and answer questions and whatnot so if that sounds interesting to you shoot me a text 202-894-8844 and I just put the word outside in it so I know how you found me
1: this episode was written and produced by me Marin Larson and edited by Michael Roberts music by Robbie Carver the Outside Podcast is made possible by our Outside Plus members. Learn more about all the benefits of membership at outsideonline.com slash We're offering new members a 25% discount. Just enter the code pod25 at checkout.
2: So if there's one thing to take away from this show is that I had a handful of moments looking great doing extraordinary activities <laughs> and engaging every day.
1: Yeah, it's really barefooted day outdoors.
2: I just want to. I want to. I want to thank. I want to thank America. I want to thank America for this
1: free <laughs> gift.